make any sense at all just to make sure that we're all still awake, including myself. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious God, thank you so much for this chance we have, the opportunity we have to be present in worship both here and at home. To spend this portion of our day not focused on anything else but learning more about you, experiencing more about you, allowing the power of the Holy Spirit to fill us and to use us and to challenge us and to guide us, to guide us and convict us. So may these words from the cross once again that Jesus thought were so important to say in his last breath as he could get enough breath to make that hang on the cross. May these words speak to us today about family and what it means to be in Christ's family and that you and I have a place. And so, Lord, just pour into these words today. May they speak to our sleepy hearts. May they awaken our spirits. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. And everybody said together, both here and at home, Amen. I heard those at home. Barbara Hall, I heard you. Follow along the new version and be able to see all the notes and all the fill-in-the-blank answers as well for those pieces as we gather together. The Gospels focus most of their time and attention on the twelve who were called to follow him. But it's also clear from the, the Gospels that many others traveled with Jesus during his ministry. And women were always a part of that group. Some of them, Luke tells us, even helped pay for expenses using their own resources to support Jesus and his ministry. So it makes sense that women will be among those who are with Jesus during his final hours. And as we celebrated International Women's Day this past week, go women. I know. Women are, the, women are the heart and the lifeblood of the church. It would have been up to the men, besides the twelve disciples, it would have gone a whole different direction. All four Gospels mention women who were brave enough to follow Jesus to the cross when the rest of his disciples ran away and to be there at his crucifixion. It's easy to imagine their desire to stay near the cross to demonstrate to Jesus he was not alone and to be near their friends and teacher and Lord to hear his last words. The women's names and number are different from gospel to gospel. And that's not surprising since Matthew and Luke tell us there were a number of women who followed the procession from inside the city walls all the way to Golgotha. And Matthew makes clear he's not attempting to list the women at all. But John's Gospel here in John 19.25 lists out those people, those women who were there. That Jesus' mother was there but only named in terms of her relationship to Jesus. We only know her name because the other Gospels, but John doesn't mention her name at all. Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, and Jesus' aunt, referenced only as his mother's sister. You ever thought about that Mary had siblings? I never really thought about that. So Jesus had an aunt. (laughs) And the last time we saw Jesus' mother is in John's Gospel, and John's Gospel is in chapter 2. 
That's 19. In chapter 2, at the beginning of his ministry, is the only other time that we see Mary in all of John's Gospel. And it's where Jesus' disciples are they're invited to go to a wedding. Remember this story? And they're attending this wedding in Cana, and Mary is there too. And when the wine runs out, she says to Jesus, they have no wine. And perhaps she's thinking about both the, the guests. She wants to spare the host with her friends of their embarrassment. But Jesus seems to dismiss their concerns. He says, woman, what concern is it to that to you and me? My hour has not yet come. Catch how he addresses his mother here. Or maybe Jesus simply does not yet want to raise awareness that he is the Messiah, but performing a public miracle. And Jesus' address to his mother may seem striking to us. After all, in our culture, what loving son calls their mother woman? Woman? That probably gets you the back of a hand. Somebody, oh, yeah. Don't do it right now. It's okay. He's being nice. Don't. It might seem rude, disrespectful to us, but it's not. The, the term that John uses doesn't translate very well into modern English. It's not as formal as saying, yes, ma'am, which we might say in the South, and even still get in trouble when we say it to somebody who's younger because then they feel like they're old, but it's a part of our culture. But it's neither cold, it's not impersonal. That's why in some modern paraphrased versions of the Bible, this is the message, Jesus calls his mother, mother. That's what it translates to. And I know people who call their mother, mother. Maybe it's not mom. Some people call their dad, daddy, dad, father. You know, these are all different terms depending on your relationship. But with John, as we've seen before, words that are said and events that happen typically have a literal and a symbolic meaning for John. That's why John's so hard to read, because it's both literal and it's symbolic. I am the bread of life. What does that really mean? I'm literally the bread of life? Well, yes. Symbolically the bread of life? Yes. And there's a reason why Jesus addresses his mother as he does. And John wants us to stop and consider what that reason is. So to gain a better understanding of why Jesus calls his mother woman from the cross, both at the wedding of Cana and now at the cross, we need to go back to the poetic beginning of the language of John's gospel that we looked at at Christmas, which very intentionally takes us all the way back to the opening verses of the Bible itself in the Genesis because John is going right off of Genesis to do his prologue. And in the opening verses, then, of the Bible that describes how God spoke the world into existence. You see on the screen. So for John, the wedding at Cana calls to mind the first married couple in creation. Jesus is the second Adam. In this case, the mother of the world is 
Mary. And Jesus has come to inaugurate a new creation and restore all that was destroyed in the original paradise. Remember, paradise means what? Garden. And at the wedding at Cana, while the hour for Jesus' ministry may not have begun to be there yet, his mother is nothing but persistent, like mothers can be sometimes, right? Be very persistent. And so in response to Jesus' comment to her, she offers instructions to the wine stewards, reflecting her complete confidence that Jesus is going to act to repay the hospitality offered to him by his hosts. And she says, do whatever he tells you. But notice, she doesn't tell him what to do, only has faith that we, he will do whatever it is that is needed. You see, for John here, his mother represents the model disciple who trusts in the saving action of her son. It's the nervous groom and the thirsty guests who are wondering about what happened to the wine are about to experience a sign of the coming abundance that Jesus is going to offer to the whole world as he performs his first miracle in an intimate setting among family and friends. And so after Jesus instructs the servants to fill large jars of water, they comply. But when the steward ladles out the liquid out of the jar, it has turned into wine. And not just any wine. The wine that Jesus makes is the best of the celebration. So much so, and I love this part, so much so that the puzzled wine steward asked the bridegroom why they went against the custom of saving the cheaper wine to serve the guests after they were drunk and they wouldn't notice it days into the wedding. Weddings lasted for a week. And here again, John mixes literal details with symbolism. An abundance of fine wine that Jesus produces from water that foreshadows his ministry of an abundance of bread for the hungry. Feeding the 5,000, anyone? And the 4,000? An abundance of healing. An abundant catch of fish that happens in John later on in 21. All symbolic of the abundant life that Jesus came to offer the world which he makes it quite clear in John 10.10 10, when he says, I came they might have life and that they might have it, what? Abundantly. See? It all ties together. And Jesus' mother, this model disciple, not only reminds us of the creation story, but the abundant life that Jesus has come to offer. All of us. And this was the start. And since in John's Gospel, she only appears in the wedding in Cana. And she only appears at the cross. She may also represent the scope of Jesus' earthly ministry from the very beginning until the very end. So at the cross, the scene is emotional. A lone male disciple 
Again, no name. Described only in terms of his relationship to Jesus. Accompanied this group of devoted and grieving women, remaining close not only to Jesus, but also to Jesus' mother. 1926, the disciple whom he loved. That's his name. Probably Jesus' best friend. Standing beside Jesus' mother. And now the hour of death, now that his hour has finally come that he talked about in John 2, Jesus offers the two people he loves the most in the world some tender last words. Words that we are meant to overhear. And when Jesus sees the two of them standing side by side at the cross, his heart is filled with compassion for his mother's grief and her welfare. And he tenderly says to her, Woman, you see, here is your son, or behold your son. And the disciple, he says, the disciple, he says, here is your mother. And the scripture goes on to tell us, and from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. So Jesus' dying words are similar to those maybe we've heard, or maybe we know about from so many who want to impart their dying wishes to the ones that they love, to their families, before their death. Take care of each other. And while they are similar on one level, on another they offer yet a deeper meaning. I mean, what would you want your family to know from you in your dying breath? If you only had a couple sentences you'd be able to say and to be able to speak out, what would you want them to know? And the disciple whom Jesus loves like Jesus' mother is never called by a name anywhere in the Gospel of John. Isn't that weird? They both are only referred to according to their relationship with Jesus. And the beloved disciple, I'll fill in the blank for those of you following in the home game, as he has come to be known, is not even introduced in John's Gospel until the night before Jesus' death. John 13, 23. While Jesus and his disciples are eating dinner, the beloved disciple is described as reclining next to or near him. It's the first time he's mentioned. Whole book. And he's present as Jesus gives his disciples a new commandment, which of course is, just as I have loved you, you should also love one another. He's also a key witness to the empty tomb. And he's named as the disciple who recognized the resurrected Christ in his appearance to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. He's the one who knows it's Christ when he's come back. And while the beloved disciple is described as present at these particular events, there's no doubt he was present with Jesus throughout his ministry as a witness to all the abundance out of the scarcity that was around them. And because he stays near Jesus at his death and at the tomb, and he recognizes Jesus, 
through the abundant catch of fish. The beloved disciple, just like Jesus' mother, for John is the model disciple. See? He's the model disciple. The beloved disciple. Nobody else gets the term beloved. And that disciple is called to continue Jesus' ministry into the future, which is why he's present in all of these scenes. And one writer says maybe the reason Jesus' mother and the beloved disciple are not named in this gospel is so that we can identify ourselves in them. You see, when they don't have a name, then you can't picture them and be like, well, I can't be like Peter because I don't look like Peter and I'm not Peter and that sort of thing. But when you just have just a description, anybody can be the beloved disciple. And having that same relationship with Jesus and the character traits he had, they had. You see, we are meant to be the disciple who stays close to Jesus. That's what we're supposed to be growing towards. The disciple who stays close to Jesus. Learning more, experiencing more, feeling more. Understanding Him more in His words and living them out. To hear His last words and instructions to us to have confidence in and trust in those things. To know that He will do what it is that He is called to do and supposed to do. In Jesus' provision of abundance in the midst of scarcity, that He'll always be abundant. Yeah, we started with two cars at the beginning yesterday. Got a little fearful we had a lot of food. And at the end of it, Davis texts me and, and tells me, he says, yeah, I just became back from lunch and everything's gone. I was calling agencies and saying, we're probably going to have stuff left over today. Hold, we got all this perishable stuff. I don't want it to go to waste. All gone. Every bit of it. Abundance in the midst of scarcity. Hope in the midst of our own darkness. Whatever that might be is what Jesus brings. We're meant to experience the depth of His divine love, His desire to serve others out of their love. Do you think anybody wanted to stand in the rain yesterday and be able to serve other people? Do you not think I got up in the morning and went, you know what, I really don't want to go do this today. I, I don't feel like getting wet all day. Did we do it for ourselves? Did we even do it for them? We did it for who? An audience of one. Living out the love that Jesus showed to us to others. Which is as much about talking to them as it is about the food any day of the week. We are to experience the oneness with Jesus and the Father, which has been intense at the dawn of creation. He came as Adam to restore the relationship for the garden to be put back together again. That's the whole point that they make throughout the Gospels again and again. The second Adam to make right what was wrong. And that the nearness to Jesus then brings together as a new kind of family. We become a new kind of family because we're near Him. And we're able to be with Him. You see, in John's beginning, he says, But to all who receive Jesus, who believe in His name, He gave power to become what? Children of God. Who were born, not of blood, 
right? But of God. It's the whole point John's making throughout the entire gospel. The John's gospel, unlike Matthew and Luke's, doesn't even tell us the details of Jesus' birth. And yet we often read the beginning words of John's gospel because it does tell us what it means to be a follower of Jesus, of the Christ. You see, John is not focused on the how. We all want to know the how. John's gospel at the beginning is focused on the why. It's focused on the why. Yeah, Jesus is born of a virgin. We know all the stories Matthew and Luke put together and all those kind of things. That's not what John's interested in. He wants you to know why the Logos became flesh. Why the Word became flesh. You see? The mind and the Spirit of God came into the world in the flesh. The Word became flesh and lived among us. That's where it comes from. It's the only gospel that does that. And that we are born again, not from our mother's womb, remember Nicodemus, but in a new family, not bound in traditional ways. That's what John is trying to tell us and those in his community, that throughout his ministry, Jesus is telling us about this new family that we are all a part of. That has nothing to do with blood, except his. See? In Luke 8, for example, we see a time when Jesus' mother and brothers show up while he was teaching. And they can't get inside because of this large crowd that's gathered around him, of course. So someone passes the word to Jesus, right? That your mother and brothers are standing outside waiting to see you. So if your mother and brothers were standing outside waiting to see you, what would you do? And so instead of stopping what he's doing and asking the crowd to wait while he goes outside to see his mother and his family, he says a statement that is completely shocking to us. He says, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Slap. She birthed you. How rude. If your mother and brothers are waiting outside, you said to your mother and brothers that, you know, my mother and brothers are those who do the word of God. Listen to the word of God and do it. When what on earth is going on here? But here's the thing. See, Jesus is not trying to be rude to his family or break himself away from his family and say, well, you're no longer my family. He's trying to extend the definition of what family is and who's in it. And he's saying that all of those who do God's will will be the full members of my family whether they're blood or not. See, after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples and his followers who have all become family to him during those three years on the earth. But have you ever noticed that nowhere in the gospel did they ever mention him returning and appearing to his biological family? Have you ever thought about the fact that there's nothing in the gospel about him showing up to Mary? Anywhere. No stories of that. Doesn't that seem strange? And then, 
In place of that, you have stories like Luke's Gospel where we're told of his appearance of two of his followers, not even the disciples, two of his followers who are walking to their home in Emmaus. And Luke identifies one of them as Cleopas. And John also identifies one of the women at the cross as the wife of Clopas. And some scholars suggest that Clopas and Cleopas are the same person and that Jesus appeared to this married couple who invited him into their home as family and then he revealed himself as a part of their family. Right now in my chronological Bible into the 60 days, whatever it is now, I'm just starting numbers. I finally got through Leviticus. It's rough. It's rough. And then the Israelites have just had two censuses to make sure everybody's good and counted of their community of the 12 tribes of, in the wilderness. Because it was important to them to take account of their family. And every tribe represented, and, you know, and there's so many names there, it's just like, oh my gosh. And then you see it later when Jesus chooses 12 disciples. That he is showing us that he's redefining what it means to be a part of community as the Hebrews had defined it. Because if you're Israelite, you're in the community. If you weren't Israelite, guess what? You're out. Twelve very different men that he chose. And expanding far beyond what the Hebrews understood as community only being blood. You see. And so as part of his follower family, he nicknames Peter the what? The Rock. Petros, Petra, even two different kinds of rock in that same sentence. And he tells them on this rock, different word than Peter's name, little rock, big rock, I will build my church, right? And the New Testament Greek word that we translate as church is ekklesia. Say ekklesia. That was a little weak. Say it like you really know it. Ekklesia. Oh, very nice, Shelly. Ecclesia, everybody at home. Ecclesia. Go out to your people and say, Ecclesia to them everywhere you go. Ecclesia. Iglesia in Spanish. You ever seen Iglesia? That's what that means. In Greek, it means the assembly. And in the Old Testament, Ecclesia is a Hebrew word that means all the people gathered together. So Jesus is saying that he will build his new community on Peter's declaration and faith when he says to him, you are the Messiah. And that for Jesus, anyone who has faith in him can be a part of this incredibly including and far-reaching family of God, no matter who you are. And by doing God's will, they place themselves under Christ the King and into the, enter the kingdom that he has created, you see? How mind-blowing is that? that we can be part of this community, this new community and this new kingdom and be linked together even when we're not blood, by His blood. And now we head back to the cross where Jesus again is building this new community as His last dying wish. 
When Jesus looks down at his grieving mother and the disciple and says, Woman, behold your son. Here is your mother. He's doing more than ensuring some care for her after his death. After all, she has other sons to do that. Other family who will be around to take care of her. Instead, he's creating this new relationship between his mother and the beloved disciple who are not blood. And in the same relationship, saying we can share with Jesus that same kind of created family. See? In the moment he leaves his mother and the beloved disciple in care of one another, Jesus left all of his future followers. That's us, folks. His family in the care of one another as well. And as the family of Christ, we are called to follow his final instructions. Follow the example of those who gathered the cross with him. And this new call into this new community was always a part of the understanding of the early Christian followers. That's why in the Christian assemblies that Paul started and nurtured, he made sure that, that they were within the body of Christ, that they would know this. There'd be no distinctions between Jews and Gentiles, between slave and free, between men and women. Even when those larger secular categories the Romans used all the time to break people apart. And Paul insisted that Christians should focus on instead what? Building each other up so that we become rooted and grounded in love. Not education. Not study. Not even serving. Rooted and grounded in love. And so most of us, I imagine, know people in our church that have been family to our children or us. In my own life, Good Shepherd has been family closer than anything I've had. Hannah has grown up from 10 to almost 18. You were there in the death of my dad a couple of months before COVID descended on us. Remember when those times were? I wasn't even dealing with my dad's death yet before we got hit with everything. Condolences and gifts on my desk remind me that I am loved. You know who you are. Notes of encouragement, congratulations, and prayers as life's changed so dramatically over this last year. And I and my clergy colleagues have struggled beyond anything we ever experienced in our calling, many of us failing in many ways, including myself. Never been a year like this in ministry. And important a year when our extended biological families have been isolated. Travel difficult. You couldn't even see your grandkids. And our church community scattered everywhere and still is. We became even greater family to each other in different ways. Remember those days when Susan and I would take out those meals and did birthday drive-bys and saw you for the first time in, we thought a couple months was a long time. I haven't seen some folks in a year. You and I have delivered meals of all kinds. Debbie has brought barbecue to people's houses. 
Volunteers have made phone calls. They have sent cards week after week to every person in the congregation. Shout out to Mary Peterson and her group for doing that. I talked to Mary this week and she misses all of us. To help meet the needs that were unmet and let folks know they're not forgotten. There are still some folks out there we haven't seen in a year that I've talked to and, you know, it's easy to feel forgotten. When life goes on around you and people start spinning back up and everything happens and you're still sitting in your house, you're still afraid, you still have things that are going on with you. And that's what I hear from you too. And as I've been making calls this week and hearing the stories this last year. They've been stories of isolation. They've been stories of triumph. They've been stories of struggle. And they've also been stories of sacrifice. They've been stories of shots and stories of waiting. And stories of walking together through all the anxiety and the fear and the anger and the hurt and the sadness and the brokenness of our lost hopes and our lost dreams. And then forgiving each other for our missteps because every one of us has made a misstep at one time or another over this last year with somebody somewhere in our lives. Amen? And yet forgiveness seems to be a very short supply. But we're family. And forgiveness is what family does. We might even get each other's nerves at times. We might even disagree. In everything this year. And there's plenty of disagreement to go around this year. But in the end, we reconcile. We realize the most important thing that we do is being together even when we don't agree even when there's bad blood between us because we're family you probably have some biological family that's that way too but after this last year maybe you've even thought you know what I really need to restore my relationships with them too and together as community and with God leading us we can get through anything in our lives. Amen? With God leading us and together as community and continuing to cross over and to not let the bounds of our disconnection keep us apart even in spirit and truth and even through cameras and everything else, but that we are still community. This is still the Good Shepherd community of faith. That hasn't changed. Even after a year, you ever see a friend that you haven't seen in years and you pick it right back up as soon as they're right back into your life? People did that yesterday. I saw, I've seen those people, but you maybe not, you know, people were saying, I've just got a chance to meet somebody new or to work with somebody different or see them for the first time. Vernon Terry Anderson, shouting out to you. I hadn't seen you in a while. That's the kind of new community that Christ came to bring. And did you know this? Because I didn't. Community and common and communion all come from the same root English word. So early on during everything, we kept saying the church building may be closed, but the church, the ecclesia, is not closed. This isn't from yesterday. This is from last August. And we were trying to figure out how we're ever going to be able to do Feed the Need 
that we'd use the entire building inside to do for years and years and years with smaller feed some students during the summer, how could we possibly pull off doing feed the need, the full-blown deal outside? It's never going to work. We can't figure it out. Here's the traffic pattern. Here's how this is going to work. Here's what we're going to do over here. All this stuff. And yet, there we were. The church still being the church. It didn't stop us. And now, we just did it last Saturday like it was nobody's business. This is the family. This is the church. We figured out how to do it together. Folks, you are the church. We are the church. You see, we're the body of Christ together. And we're not closed. And we're not going to be closed. And we showed that in so many more ways from doing St. Patrick's Day luncheon this year to the way that we did lots of other events to having things outside to whatever it was to creating all these new experiences that were different, but they're still the same. Because they're still about community. We still packed Operation Christmas Child boxes. We still did all the things that we normally would do, but in different ways. And through the power of Christ, we also find that we are something new. That we are something transformed. And what he brings is all of that together as a new family. As his family. May we lean in and listen to these words from the cross. And may we be family to one another, even when family is messy and not easy to do. Because he said to us in those last words, Here is your family. Here is your family. Take care of one another. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Amen. So I invite us to pray this Psalm 107 that we're going to obviously be uh, not praying together, but that Connie will lead us in praying. And here are some of these verses and how they reflect on what was said today and on Jesus' journey on the cross. Hi, everybody. This is Psalm 107. Give thanks to the Lord, because He is good, because His faithful love lasts forever. That's what those who are redeemed by the Lord say, the ones God redeemed from the power of their enemies, the ones God gathered from various countries, from east and west, north and south. Some of the redeemed had wandered into the desert, into the wasteland. They couldn't find their way to a city or town. They were hungry and thirsty. Their lives were slipping away. So they cried out to the Lord in their distress, and God delivered them from their desperate circumstances. God led them straight to human habitation. Let them thank the Lord for his faithful love and his wondrous works for all people. Because God satisfied the one who was parched with thirst, and he filled up the one who was hungry with good things. Some of the redeemed were fools because of their sinful ways. They suffered because of their wickedness. They had absolutely no appetite for food. 
they had arrived at death's gates. So they cried out to the Lord in their distress, and God saved them from their desperate circumstances. God gave them the order and healed them. He rescued them from the pit. Let them thank the Lord for his faithful love and his wondrous works for all people. Let them offer thanksgiving sacrifices and declare what God has done in songs of joy.
is my life, Lord. Speak what is true. What is true is we're part of a community of love. A community bought by a precious blood. A community that no matter where who we are, we have a place. A community of family that He created for us in forgiveness and reconciliation. And so thank you, Lord God, for the good work that Jesus was performing even on the cross, creating a new community of love, the church, a community bound together by the saving blood of Jesus, transcending all the barriers of national boundaries and of culture and of language and one great fellowship of love throughout the whole wide earth. May we be true to Jesus' good work on the cross, loving and caring for one another in our church whoever the brother or sister of Christ may be. And let us the world in the name of Jesus and bring everyone into his family. And everybody said both here and at home, Amen.